0: giant robots smashing into other giant robots
1: this is the giant robots smashing into other giant robots podcast where we explore the design development and business of great products i'm your host chad Pitel, and with me today is greg story executive director of design at usaa and founder of the design and development studio airbag industries greg thank you for joining me thanks to the invites glad to be here if there's anything else remarkable that you want to be introduced to us now is the time.
2: So, no, I, I think most people know me as Airbag, not even the development studio, but just Airbag. In fact, during South by for a couple of years, I would put the, my website's logo over the top of my name because everybody knew the logo, Airbag's logo. They didn't know who Greg Story was. Mm-hmm. It's
1: interesting. I feel like the same is true for ThoughtBot, but in a little bit of an extension of that. Like a lot of people know us for our work or the products we've created or the open source. And then they're like, they're like, I'm, what's Thoughtbot? And then we say a few things that we've worked on. They're like, oh yeah, Thoughtbot. I know that. And then we also have a culture of like, we don't really um, put our names on things. It's more of a group effort representing everything mm-hmm. that we do. And that's, Goes all the way back to I did sketch comedy at college and and that kind of thing and for whatever reason we just never had credits on anything because it was just this is our group and here's what we've produced. I think that carried forward to Thoughtbot.
2: Well, I mean, it, it depends on I guess what you're looking for there, right? So one, I, I think it's good for individuals to get credit for the work that they do, mm-hmm. but I, I think it's you know it, it's it's credit, not a parade, right? And I feel like they the sensitivity to whether it's, you know, calling on individuals and their contributions. Um, or in this case, you know, associating or, or putting the company name before the product or the, the, you know, the services that you provide. That's a challenge. But in today's world, you know, it's repetition, repetition, repetition. And, um, I I guess in ThoughtBot's case, it depends on how healthy the pipeline is, right? Right. If, if things are going well, that's great. But you know, when you're out there trying to compete against other companies that let's face it, have no shame and, uh, they'll put their, their stickers everywhere. They'll put their name everywhere. They're on social media. They're, they're almost flaunting almost, uh, you know, it's almost a vanity thing or that's how how it it might come across, but that's what you're kind of up against. In hearing your story, I think about some friends of mine who have a studio in South Dakota called Electric Pulp, and they have done a lot of really good work, like solid work, even things that made it into uh, popular culture. But they're to some degree, and I, if if you're hearing this, uh, guys, don't take offense, but uh, you know, I think that they're kind of quiet and Mm -hmm. uh, keep to themselves a bit as part of where they were raised. And there's nothing wrong with that, but at the same time, it does. I know it in in their case, there have been a couple of times where having more name recognition may have helped, mm-hmm. right? Certainly at Happy Cog, where I was a partner for a while, you know, there was a time when everybody knew for the most part who Happy Cog and who Jeffrey Zobin was. Right. And I know that, that that played well into our hand. So I think it's what makes you comfortable, but uh, in this day and age, where even people are looking at their own, quote, brand. I don't see any harm in it and think that to some degree, yeah, you got to have your name out there and repeat it a couple times.
1: When you were starting Airbag, was it just you or did you start that with other people? Just me. Mm -hmm. Did you ever consider just using your name?
2: Yes, but it was Jeffrey Zeldman who actually convinced me that I should quit my job and start my own studio. Mm Mm-hmm. And then he was quick to follow it up with, and you got to call it airbag. Like before I could even respond, he said, and you got to call it airbag because that's how people know you. (laughs) Everybody knows you as airbag. They don't know who Greg Story is. Uh And he said, I take it from me. I wish I would have done the exact opposite because I started a company called Happy Cog and nobody knows who, what Happy Cog is, but everybody knows what to Jeffrey Zeldman is. Yeah. Now, at the time, it wasn't exactly true. Happy Cog was making some headlines, and about a year or two later, Happy Cog was definitely in the mainstream in terms of our industry's uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of kitchen table knowledge of people and places. But, yeah, that's, you got to start a company, and you got to call it airbag. So he convinced you to go out on your
1: own. Did you always intend for it to grow beyond just you and to be a
2: studio? Mm. Well, to be honest, I didn't really have any ambition to start my own studio. Mm -hmm. I did it because this guy that I respect and admire saw something in me and I took him for his word. And, um, at the time I wasn't able to actually quit my job and and go start my studio. That happened honestly, two years later. Right. I got to a point in life where if I was going to do it, that was going to be it. And so I went for it. And as I got into business, I don't like working by myself. I'm not an, exactly an extrovert, but I, I am not also an introvert. I'm somewhere in, in the middle. and And so as I was taking on more work and new work, I used the money from those projects to go work with other people that I That I wanted to go work with, you know, go, go see what it was like to go work with some of these, um, folks whose blogs I followed and whose work I followed, you know, whether that was design or development or some type of subject matter expertise. I pretty much in the first year, I blew any and all kind of profit that Airbag would have ever had on working with instead of doing the work just myself is hiring contractors and and hiring friends or people I'd like to get to know to work with them. And then from there, once I saw the mechanics of how the service business worked, I just decided, okay, there's no reason why I shouldn't actually take this essentially, you know, freelance business. Because when you're working by yourself, that's pretty much your, your freelancer and decided, okay, let's, I don't have children to provide for. So let's pour some coals on this and actually start hiring people and, uh, see what we can do. You said something
1: that I wanted to ask more about, and and forgive me if I don't understand, but you said, once I understood the mechanics of the service business, but you were at Happy Cog
2: before, right? No, 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 no. I, um, I started Airbag a year before Happy Cog Philadelphia was stood up. Uh, and that's where Greg Hoy had partnered with Jeffrey Zulman to extend Happy Cog beyond what Jeffrey Zeldman was doing in New York City. I joined Happy Cog in 2009. Okay. Effectively, we moved Airbag into Happy Cog mm-hmm. You know, through a bunch of legal paperwork and just uh, adopted the name uh, in 2009. But Airbag still exists today? Airbag exists today, but it's mostly just a consultancy. I don't do much work, but there are some people that I've been consulting for years, and uh, I continue to do that for about two or three people today.
1: Okay. And so is most of your time at USAA then?
2: Oh, yeah. That is full-time. Yeah. USAA, I've got 35 designers, uh, project managers, and a program manager. So, yeah, my hands are tied there.
1: So I imagine, given your reputation... And your past work and, and experience, you had a lot of options for
2: what you might want to do. What drew you to USAA? I'd say my reputation got my, my foot in the door. Mm-hmm. But as you get older, um, you know, so I'm 47 right now. Been in the business for, um, what, 21 years, specifically in digital in design. I've been in a business for 25 you know, the longer you are in years, and in, in terms of an industry, unless you chose to be that kind of uh, individual contributor, you know, kind of champion of work. Like I look at Eric Meyer, mm-hmm. he is definitely at the, you know at the top of his game, being an individual contributor to HTML, CSS, uh, that that type of work. Once you get into management, though, you start to look like a manager, talk like a manager, walk like a manager, and so to some degree it becomes a little bit more difficult to go into a place and find a good fit. So I was fortunate in that I've, I know a lot of people I've been able, I was able to have a lot of conversations, uh, but it took, took longer than I thought. And I think that just had to do with, uh, you know, kind of where I am in my career, you know, again, there are fewer leadership positions than than there are contributor positions, right? And so uh it, it takes a bit to get into those places. I wrote about this on uh, medium as a way to um share my story to help others because there are other folks out there who are in the same kind of boat of, you know, approaching forty and finding it difficult to move on to the next thing. But anyway, after I left Happy Cog, about six months later, I ended up at IBM Design mm-hmm. that's in you know Austin, Texas, uh, or headquartered there, and um, played a couple different roles there before USAA called with um, an opportunity to lead a different kind of team at a very different type of company. And uh, I, was, I was happy to move on into this new world that I'm in uh, today. So
1: given that, and we'll link that blog post in the show notes, by the way, but... Would you say that given what you're saying around the dynamic of the positions available to you, that it was much more likely that you were going to end up in a big organization than a small
2: one? No, I sought out bigger organizations because I felt like I knew what the small company around 35 people was like. Mm-hmm. And and I enjoyed it. Leaving Happy Cog was not an easy decision. And it wasn't something that I wanted to, to do, but I did so in the interest of uh, the company and, and a lot of other factors. And at that point, I thought, okay, now I'm in a somewhat different position where 10 years prior, I found myself with the ability to go start my own company. Now I'm in an ability to take everything that I've learned about running a small business, you know, building up designers and parlay that into an opportunity at at hopefully a bigger company where I can go see what life is like on kind of almost on the other side of the client. Right. Mm-hmm. We at both airbag and happy cog had served clients with a lot of people, you know, a lot of employees. And so I thought, well, let's go see what life is like on, on that side. You know, what's it like to be on the client side and went from happy cog company of, you know, again again, 35 ish people to a company of 400,000 people. I tell you, I, I learned a lot in two and a half years, like way more than I ever would have expected going into that job. What are some of the things that surprised you? I think some of the surprise was that even at a 400,000 person company, people are faking until they make it. There's no, I, I thought going into IBM, I would be handed this large three ring binder of here's what IBM is. Here's how you work at IBM. Here's how you do your job. Mm-hmm. That's to the point of like a, a script, but I certainly figured that there would be more things figured out and kind of documented. And, um, it, it wasn't exactly that way at IBM. And, and now having worked at USA and now having talked to some other folks who kind of made similar transition to what I did, like it, it doesn't matter what size of company you're at. Nobody's got anything figured out, right? The, the difference is your, your benefits, and they do have that part figured out, right? And there's more HR rules. And so everything dealing with humans, that part has kind of been figured out. And there's a lot of regulations and rules and things you can and cannot do at a larger company. But in terms of innovation and trying to, to you know, make the next thing or to make your products and services better, there's still a bit of the seat of the pants, you know, if, mm. if you're doing it right at larger companies, just like at small companies. And I think the other thing uh, about you know large versus small, of course, is uh, being in a large institution. There are more people you've got to go get buy-in from. You know, things just they inevitably take longer. That that wasn't a surprise to me.
1: So you you started to say earlier describing the team that you work on. What is that? What does that team look like?
2: Yeah. So today I have a program manager and five directors. Under each director is uh, approximately six to seven designers. And those skills um, run the gamut from research, visual, UX, a little bit of service design expertise. And then funny enough, we don't have feds on our team. They're, they're tucked into IT. Mm-hmm. So I've got about 35 people, and um, we service at USA what we call FASD, which is the Financial Advice Services Group. We do all the work on any of the investment products that USA provides, both on the member side. You know, so if you want to go trade stock or buy a mutual fund or buy into a mutual fund or buy an annuity, we design all the user facing uh, parts of that, as well as all the advisor or all of the kind of back end experiences to help those folks service the members while they may be on the phone or through email or however that exchange is done. And what is it that you spend your time doing? I spend my time working with the business to try to make sure that we are working on the right thing that um, they're prioritizing design at usaa is still relatively new like Mm -hmm. baby new we're in our second year and so a lot of times um i spend time with my senior executives talking to them about design answering questions about design about you know our capabilities what we should be doing when we should be doing it but a lot of time is just spent trying to f- keep up with the business and there's we have a lot of businesses packed into this investment space as you can imagine mm-hmm. and so uh, keeping up with them to know that that we're working on the right stuff and and that the designers are are delivering and we've got a lot of partners too so we've got people that you know in IT and, uh, we have a, a huge research division. So getting to know those partners. So I, I haven't even been there a year myself yet. Mm-hmm. So I'm still getting to know a little bit of uh, what my ropes are, but getting to know those partners and, you know, ironing any kinks out of uh, our process as it may be interfering or stepping on toes or there may be a gap between what our partners deliver and what, what we deliver. Just negotiating all of that. It's it's more definitely more of a a corporate vibe, mm-hmm. I feel, job than what I had at IBM. When uh you said that design
1: is relatively new, it's just been a couple of years, but it's a you know, there's a number of people on that team. Were those existing people was design department extracted from existing team members and adding, or is it entirely new? With you know, they've hired thirty five people in the last two years and made the design department?
2: So design existed at u s a certainly, um, but it was tucked into i t yeah design was more of the afterthought, mm-hmm. not necessarily you know brought into the beginning of a project and so, our chief design office was stood up by Mariah Garrett about a year and a half ago ish, and that's where she took designers out of i t organizations some designers out of marketing who are doing more application type of work mm-hmm. and then just sort of hiring more mm-hmm. to where we've got hundreds of designers now. And they are centralized in three different places in San Antonio, Austin, and Plano. They're centralized so that we can kind of get, get design kind of reset yep. as a practice within within USAA.
1: Is the rest of USAA also organized functionally? And what I mean by that is, in a functional organization, you might have a design department, an engineering department, a management and then those three functions come together to work on projects rather than having the financial business have entirely teams within it.
2: Yes, yeah, so no we are currently we are org where everybody is in their. What I'd say, like you know, their vocational departments or their Mm -hmm. functional departments, Mm -hmm. and then in some cases, uh, isolated cases, we actually have a few teams where design, development, the product owners all sit in the same space. Mm -hmm. Now those, you know, obviously that that works well. Right now, though, it's an anomaly. It's it's not. um, Mm -hmm. It's something that that we not just design, but it product ownership, the business all have to, you know, take a look at that and say, which model do we want to follow? Yeah. But for right now, we're sitting in isolated area, not so much areas, but we definitely have the designers sitting with designers, IT sits, you know, developers with developers and the business sits with the business. Mm-hmm.
1: What are some of the challenges that you or other members of the team have faced in terms of extracting design, elevating design, bringing it outside of IT? That either you know you fully expected or, or or you didn't.
2: I'd say one of the challenges for us is our department CDO was stood up seemingly abruptly. Mm-hmm. Um, now I say seemingly because our chief design officer and others took a year, kind of on tour around USAA to talk about design and to try to get you know as much of a, an audience as possible to kind of say, hey, we're coming and. This is how we're going to try to affect a different way of working. When CDU kind of got stood up, it seemed that a lot of people weren't really listening. Yeah. <laughs> or probably more importantly, there were just so much going on and, and just too busy. And right. so there's a lot of things about the way that we work that still comes as a surprise. Fortunately, we've got a lot of very receptive people. So once I'm able to, or another executive is actually able to kind of sit down and and explain some things and and answer questions, everybody feels much better about you know where we are today with with things. But that's definitely been a challenge as being an agent of change and. Actually, even being like the literally like the thing that is forcing change in Mm -hmm. a very large company, I'm surprised by how many people you know they know about us, but they don't necessarily ask questions. Yeah, and so that sometimes makes things difficult. The other is just being new, you know. And in a large organization, I saw this happen at IBM, where when I was there, IBM design was three to four years old, Mm -hmm. and there were there were literally executives that you know, just didn't want to play along Mm -hmm. and they felt that they like maybe some other initiatives within the company, they would just simply outlive us. And so rather than me go out of my way to change how I do things and what I consider to be a priority, I'm just going to not talk to you and and hope you go away sooner than later. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's inevitable that there's some of that, um, Maybe not to the degree or the tenacity that I saw at IBM, but there's some folks that are just resistant to, to change in process and change of ownership.
1: And from their perspective, that has probably been a good strategy in the past. You know, through if they've been there a while, I'm sure that fads have come yeah. along or initiatives have come along and then ex- there's an executive change or a change in thinking. And a few years later, it's no longer happening.
2: Yeah, you know, the longer people are at, are at these companies, you know, people that have been serving for 25 years, they have a healthy amount of cynicism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they're not, again, they're not bad people. It's just that's, that's how they've gotten through things in the past. Otherwise, working at USA, I find that, you know, the, the culture is great. For every person that may be grumpy about, you know, wanting to change their ways, there's probably a hundred or more, you know, in front of them saying, Hey, I want to learn something new. Mm -hmm. So by and large, we have a lot of very receptive people who look forward to our conversations, look forward to, um, working smarter. And that's that's really what my drive is, is whether it's a design process or not, I'm just trying to help us all work smarter
0: mm-hmm.
2: and um, work as uh, efficient as we can. But I like to focus on working as smart as we can. And if design can help in that way, then we're, we're going to do that. If sometimes that means design needs to get out of the way, we're going to do that too.
1: Do you have any formal training in this new way of working or is it just learn by doing? A lot of it is learned by doing.
2: However, we are at USA. We're moving into something called safe agile. Mm -hmm. If you ever want to lose sleep at night, go take a look at the safe agile chart. (laughs) When I heard that we were doing this, I swear a a little bit of my soul left my body. (laughs) I prefer the, the nimble agility that you get being a small company. Mm -hmm. Um, And so within me still are expectations of we should be able to run at least my group should be able to run like we did at happy cog or did airbag i run with the bias of making and uh you know just getting things done not talking about it and and trying to assess every inevitable risk you know it's just we'll we'll deal with those things as they come safe agile is what i would call the exact opposite of this and so it's um I just had to go through two days of safe, agile training. And um, for me personally, that was excruciating. Mm.
1: I have to admit, I've never heard of safe, agile before. What is it? (laughs)
2: So safe, agile, near as I could tell. Take agile, okay? Mm -hmm. Some of the tenets of agile. But now attach that to the process of building a 747. Mm -hmm. Right? So there are, I, I do think that there are, processes out there that require this kind of rigor and this kind of um, just engineering to death mm-hmm. how you make things, mm-hmm. which is really what it is. So, you know, if you're making things like An airplane that needs to stay up, you know, during, (laughs) during flight or, uh, things that just have, uh, critical parts and, and, uh, processes of their own. Yes, I, you would want to make sure that the thousands and thousands of people working on this all at once, that they are getting things right, you know, that you have parts delivered on time that go into the thing and that you've got the right people that are there to, Put the parts into the plane and you know mm-hmm. so i i get it um it's just it's taking agile and making it what i would consider a very arduous process mm-hmm. and why they even bothered keeping the agile name i don't know it's seriously it's a form of agile for uh the enterprise that um does not make me happy but i know a lot of people this is like they they love it just to clarify would you say that
1: the organization was doing agile before and this is a new way of doing agile or was the organization yeah. not doing agile at all and they're saying this is how we're going
2: to introduce agile? This whole Safe Agile thing came about the same time that I came on board. Mm-hmm. So we definitely, for my groups, they were definitely in some form of agile practice where they were, you know, two-week sprints and either using Kanban board or they had a Scrub Master. Mm-hmm. There was a number of different ways, you know, that that they were all organized around essentially a two-week sprint. And get it, some of the groups were getting into you know pointing sizing all that kind of stuff. The safe agile is part of just an overall digital transformation for all of USA. So it's not just my teams, but other design teams that are supporting different areas of the business, uh, IT, business process. There's there's all uh, just a lot of transformation that is going on at USA right now, all at the same time. And safe is one part of it.
1: Mm-hmm. And how does design? function within that flow?
2: That is a very good question because we had to figure that out. Uh-huh. Safe, agile, out of the box doesn't necessarily come up or have a point of view on where design fits in. Fortunately, we had the opportunity to think about that for a while and come up with the point of view that is being adopted across different businesses and their adoption of safe, agile. So essentially... You know, safe agile, you have three levels of work that goes from portfolio. So, you know, just like big ideas, big business goals down to what's called the team layer where you're actually chunking that work up into, you know, here's the features. Here's this, the pointing, you know, Mm -hmm. we're going to get it done in this sprint, la, 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 la. Where we've put design primarily is to make sure that we're at that, um, what they call the program layer. Yeah. Uh, Whereas they're determining what priorities are, we're helping them assess using design thinking tools and and whatnot to help assess the priority, but also to help get an idea of you know what that should be based upon user research. I'm really happy
1: to hear that because if you had said we're just integrated at the team level, making sure, and we're not at that program level, then yeah. that would severely impact design's ability to be part of conversation in building great
2: product. Well, yeah, because at the team level, that would essentially take us back to where we were in the first place, which is, Hey, you're a designer, make this look good. Right. Right. To some degree. So no, we're involved in, in all aspects. And what's interesting about this and, you know, can cut again, goes back to what I like about USAA is each team. There's some flexibility to kind of figure this out, you know, and we're not tasked with adopting safe agile to the T but making this whole process fit for the whole team, you know, the, the team of teams. That's all to say I've got one group of designers who are working in a little bit different way than another group of designers using the same framework. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's working. It's just, again, for me, uh, when I take a look at this, and <laughs> I, I just say, man, just give me these 30-plus these designers. We'll go fix the world. Right. And, you know, we don't need a framework. Do you think that there's any company or
1: any kind of organization that ultimately shouldn't have a chief design officer or if not, you know, that specific title have yeah. design sitting at the, you know, executive leadership level? That's
2: another good question. I've... I'm full of them today. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Thanks for saving them. Um, I've been trying to process what it means to have a seat at the table. Now, mm-hmm. you know, that's, cur- that's currently not my job. I, I kind of uh, watch a bit from afar. Right. So you're more at the execution of that. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, I I was just having a conversation with Ryan Rumsey about this. He sits across from me and he's in strategy. We were just thinking about this of, of we're not sure that a lot of when people say they want a seat at the table, I don't know that people really understand what that means. Mm hmm. I think the intent is to make sure that design is represented equally, you know, air quotes equally at whatever meetings or conversations are held at that level. And that by having somebody in an executive's position, that design has the proper air cover that it needs, especially in its infancy, right. To get stood up, you know, to make sure it has enough time to really get in there and, become a a peer program to the rest of the organization that's been there for 10, 30, 70 years. Mm -hmm. Right. And that does, you know, it takes a tremendous amount of support and air cover for design to be able to just do its job, let alone flourish at a company that's been around for a long time. But, you know, having that seat at the table, what does that mean? Does that mean that you get to sit there and, and, you know, when the topic comes up, offered an opinion on what color we should be using for this year's fall campaign. No. You know, does it mean that um somehow everything design related is going to even come to that person's way? No. It means a lot of numbers. Mm-hmm. It means a lot of spreadsheets. It means having to enumerate things that are difficult to assign value to. It means... Having to represent design in a completely different language than what, you know, you and I would talk or, or how we might represent design or mm-hmm. how you and I might want to have the conversations that we want to have about, about design. I think to some degree, going back to your question is, I think people have to be careful what they wish for. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that you've got to be prepared. If that is what you seek, you have to be prepared to completely give up at that point um any notion of making let alone even having conversations about design in a design way and i don't again i when people say they want to seat the table i honestly feel like most of them don't know what what they're asking for mm-hmm.
1: a few years ago i wrote a blog post about the importance of companies elevating design and having chief design officers and i used it as analogous to what happened with IT going to CTOs and CIOs eventually. And Mm. I now realize that I was only talking about the first part of the transition. And the second part, I think, is pretty much what you were just talking about. Because now you see at large organizations, CIOs and CTOs aren't necessarily coming from within the technology side of the organization. They're people who our business people and our executives who have been able to navigate that and get results out of that side of the organization. But they're not people who are actually doing any IT or information technology.
2: Right. They're MBAs that understand operations Mm -hmm. and business organization design or IT or whatever it is that they're over is simply the product that they're selling. Right. And um, what's scary about that to, to some degree is those people come in with the mindset of, I'm going to take this little fledgling group and I'm going to build it into a billion dollar business, right? Because that's kind of where their, their real focus is. The tangential focus is on whatever it is that they're responsible for. I saw that happen at Facebook. And when I say I saw that happen at Facebook, what I mean is I had an opportunity to go um, talk to a lot of folks at Facebook and, and for the product owners and sometimes even the VPs of design, their focus wasn't necessarily on, you know I don't want to misrepresent them, Mm -hmm. but the the focus wasn't necessarily on building the most bestest thing out there. It was growing my hundred and twenty million dollar annual, you know, year to half a billion in three years' time. Right? That that's um is very much an MBA like focus, not Mm -hmm. a practitioner focus.
1: So is that a bad thing, or and if it is, then then what might we do to to not have it happen?
2: Well, I think it's a bad thing. I mean, have you mm-hmm. ever worked for a boss who didn't understand what you did? Right. Right. <laughs> We're already going through that as it is. You know, being designers in in companies that don't know what we do, and so therefore, it's the kind of catch twenty two. Right. Is. Right the business the other folks that we work with don't understand what we do so they don't know that we should be in the room to help them make decisions mm-hmm. at the same time if we try to elevate someone within the practice to become eventually this uh, chief executive of design they may not necessarily be equipped to be able to work in that world to provide design enough air cover to flourish mm-hmm. right So then the opposite of that is just what you described, bringing in somebody that just knows how to operate at an executive level and knows how to get things done in large organizations. And they have to learn now, okay, well, what do you do? What is design again? How are we going to make money off this? Right? Um, Mm -hmm. So I think design just needs more time. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, digital design has only been around for about 20 years and has really only been around for about 15 If you consider that the first five years of the internet from like 95 to 2000, I mean, we have come so far from what that was, right? That was almost like caveman period of of where we are today. And so our industry is still so young and yet we, maybe we suffer from a bit of impatience. IT has been around for a lot longer, right? I mean, if Uh you think about computers... You know, that were the size of homes, those have been around since right. what the 40s. And so, but it, it doesn't make it any easier that we sit side by side with IT and they've got a lot of things figured out. They've got more support. No one questions why we're paying the IT bill. Right. But people s- still question why are we paying the design bill? Right. And I think it's just to some degree, we need to be patient with ourselves to give us more time to figure out that question that you just posed, which is, you know, if if we don't like the NBA person running the show, then how do we fix that? Mm-hmm. And I think that's, we need time to figure out what's design point of view on an executive position. And we need, uh, just like we've had to elevate training and opportunities for people like Mariah Garrett to step into a, a CDO job. We We need time to mature. I have a little bit of a theory
1: as we talk about this, that I'm thinking of, which is, you know, part of the transition that happened with IT is that it became integrated into everything. It touches all aspects of our companies and our products, which contributed to it transitioning from a cost center, like exclusively something that cost money, to something that generated money. And if design could do that, then that would help people understand or or believe that it was important. And A big part of what design is, is the customer and the experience and having a great customer experience and interaction at every level of the organization for customers, the users is super important. And I believe it is going to be increasingly important for companies that want to do business and survive. So feel free to disagree, and I'm just sort of talking off the top of my head in terms of the conversation. But
2: No, I mean, I don't disagree at all. I, I think there's an opportunity for design to, j- just as you say with what IT did, uh, which is to be a multifaceted service, mm-hmm. right? And so I, IT is actually, it's one, a service, a product, and a utility. Mm-hmm. And it's when you can become a utility, no one questions why you pay the bill. They might question why the bill is so high, but they don't question why they pay the bill. When you're a product and service, then that's the opportunity to, you know, go make money, go make profit. I think if you take a look at IBM design and what it has done to that company, you know, and, and we talk about design, but maybe haven't defined what that exactly, exactly means. Mm. There's, you know, design the practice of making things, whether that's a, a product or service, and then there's design as a framework for thinking about things, you know. So of course, I'm talking about design thinking, which honestly, I find the relationship to design thin, but it's out there. People are doing it. So, mm-hmm. so we got it, right? That's another, another thing that we can provide to the marketplace and to, to the business to provide value. And in February of this year, IBM Design commissioned Forrester to go out into the wild and conduct a study on design thinking's economic impact, both on IBM and its customers or its clients. And it found that after IBM Design's five-year mission of building up a design practice within IBM, and more importantly, a design thinking practice within the larger IBM I think there's been something like a hundred thousand people have gone through IBM design thinking's curriculum at IBM, right? Which is, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. But in that study, they found that products are going to market twice as fast. They overall reduce development time by 33% and the return on investment is 301%. You know, so if you, if you take a look at, you know, what's going on there. And that's happening mostly primarily through the activities surrounded around design thinking Mm -hmm. and using that as a framework for making decisions and getting things done, you know, uh, talking to your users, make sure you're building the right things, pivoting, all the good stuff that comes with that. That's the thing that we can get deeper into the organization, right? Just as IT has been able to do over the years. But that takes almost like a a different type of focus than, say, what I'm doing uh, to some degree, with with running design teams to build the right products that the members want, but I think that's where we've we've got the pieces. We just mm-hmm. have to, you know, again, we, we need a little bit more time, and we need a little bit more probably leaders in our industry and across verticals to push these types of services into the organizations and into the into the companies that are out there.
1: That's great. Um, switching gears a little bit, I, I'm curious having now transitioned for a few years from the agency side to seeing the other side i i'm sure there are lots of differences <laughs> um one i'm curious about is like for example do you find that you work a more sustainable pace versus a less
2: sustainable one mm, yes i mean the short answer is yes mm-hmm. the uh, i got to thinking about you know like well, what is what does that mean sustainable pace and you know, I think at the agency world depending on how you run the agency or, or how how I guess it's run for you but you know, you have your ups and downs. You've got your your times that are just lunatic crazy and then you've got the other times that um, you know, tumbleweeds are blowing by. Mm-hmm. And um, you're leaving early cuz either there's nothing to do or you're waiting on the client you know, like whatever. I think that, that certainly working where I do now, my schedule is more dependable. There are some, sometimes where something, you know, came down from the top that we've got to put together to get back to the top and, you know, present and that type of thing that can be a little, a little crazy, but, um, yes, more sustainable. Um, I, but I would also argue that depends on how you run your shop. Do you find that you have
1: more or less time for working on different side projects or interesting
2: things? I could definitely depend on more time. That's for sure. I think to some degree that's also due to the fact that the benefits I get, I get an absurd amount of time off. Mm-hmm. You know, if I if I want it, I haven't actually taken a lot, but I do have more time available to me.
1: That's interesting because um, obviously the time off is a factor. So that is a totally different dynamic. I would have thought that the agency world would have given you more sort of, you're working on lots of different things, gives you more opportunity to do different, like sort of slide it in and be like, I can justify doing this because it's very related to maybe the marketing we're doing or just working with this person mm-hmm. or
2: that kind of thing. So personally, I always I run... Things kind of a bit out of fear, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so, and more so when I ran my own shop. Meaning, I was afraid to spend too much time on something that wasn't billable, just because I kept thinking of the people that were working with me who relied on that paycheck. And Mm so, to some degree, I was terrified sometimes to even take a an hour to write a blog post. And so, there, there you go. That tells you a little bit about me so you you mentioned like, do you have time for me? It wasn't working in the agency. It wasn't a matter of time. Always. It was a matter of, am I brain dead or not?
0: Mm-hmm. You
2: know, and, and I remember there's days at the agency where I'd be on the phone for six hours, either pitching new work, you know, managing clients, expectations, doing design reviews. And by that, you know, sixth hour, my brain is toast. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I would just get home and, and just veg out, you know, just not have the energy and just even the, you know, the energy going in my brain to work on anything on the side. I'd say it's, it's more about that than it was actual time available. So speaking of side projects, you have one going now it's a new podcast, right? I do. It's called sprints of milestones. Friend of mine, Brett Harned, who I worked with at happy cog for a number of years. Uh, he was the VP of project management he was asked by Rosenfeld to write a book on project management, digital project management. Brett also uh, helped stand up the DPM Summit. He and I worked on that. Uh, I wouldn't say it's the very first event of its kind, but it had been a while since there had been a dedicated event for project managers and product managers. And so anyway, so when, it, when his book came along, I suggested, hey, we should uh, record a podcast and talk about the book and uh, hopefully sell more copies. That was the original idea, was to try to add to his marketing plan. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think we've sold a book yet. Um, (laughs) But it's been a lot of fun. This is my first, I've been on a lot of podcasts, but this is my first one actual producing. And so Mm -hmm. we have agreed to record eight, eight episodes. We cover the topics that are in the book, but on the podcast, we, we talk about anecdotal stories that are related to the topics in the book. So it's not just a, this isn't an audio book. It is a, a show to provide maybe a little bit more relatable content to what's in the book through my work at Airbag and Happy Cog and Brett's work at Razorfish and, and, and Happy Cog in that project management role. So it's been a lot of fun. It's at com would love any feedback, any questions. uh, Love to hear back from you or anybody who else is listening. Yeah. It's at episode five now. So he's got a couple
1: episodes to go. So if you're listening to this, uh, jump on over and you can get through all the episodes before the last ones come out, I'm sure. Although maybe it won't end, right?
2: Well, that's so (laughs) I think what we're thinking about doing, because it has been a lot of fun, is we definitely want to continue the theme of, of project management, but get into ops. You know, so speaking more about not only DevOps, but now it seems like we got an ops for everything now, Mm. you know, design, research, content strategy. It's getting a tad ridiculous, but I think that there's some... That's some, some new areas to explore, not only to help figure it out for ourselves, but help others figure out like, what are these new roles? You know, what are these, these new processes that are out there and how does that relate to existing ones? I think that's a topic that we're looking at covering in the second season.
1: Well, Greg, if people want to learn more about you or get in touch or follow along, where is
2: the best places to do that? I am brilliant crank everywhere on the internet, as far as I know. So Twitter, Medium, Airbag Industries, my, the original blog is still up. And um, you know, more of my time has been focused on the podcast lately, but uh, still contribute to that from time to time. Wonderful. Greg, thank you
1: for sharing. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. it has been fun. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at CPytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time.
2: This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco,
1: New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.